Hi, this is Peer Review, your guide to the week in science. I'm James, recording on Nungamal and Nambri land. This week, I want to start with a question. How do fire extinguishers work? Carbon dioxide? Well, doesn't help fires, does it? <laughs> Carbon dioxide extinguishers work by taking away the oxygen a fire needs to burn. Covering a fire with a blanket achieves the same thing. But what do fires need to burn apart from oxygen? Fuel and heat. You could put water on a fire to take the heat away, but you probably have a chemical extinguisher. Not that long. Technical issue. I just press pause. Okay. I faded it out. <laughs> Maybe it's just on the lag. Did you just start? Okay. <laughs> so, producer just came in, uh, claimed that we weren't recording. Okay, we were recording. Awkward. Um, anyway, not to worry. <laughs> so you probably have a chemical extinguisher in your kitchen to put out grease fires. Ideally, you would want something inert in that chemical extinguisher that wouldn't catch fire, like a chlorofluorocarbon. The problem with these is, is that although they're inert, they won't react to anything. Uh, chlorine breaks apart the ozone layer. I don't know if you've heard of CFCs, but they're not very good for the environment. I had a look on, online and found out that chemical fire extinguishers contain potassium bicarbonate, which is like sodium bicarbonate, which is you know what you put in cakes, but there's potassium instead of sodium. These chemical fire extinguishers cover the fuel so that it cannot make contact with the oxygen in the air and therefore can't burn. So why this question? Who cares? Why am I like this? Well, it all started 13.8 billion years ago with the dawn of the universe. Then, four and a half billion years ago, the sun and the earth were formed. Three and a half billion years ago, life started. Between then and now, five billion species have gone extinct. And my explanation of this is that God is playing spore on max difficulty and he's not very good. Then... My mum and dad were born and they said, you better go to uni and get a good job. And then I did. And that's everything that's important that's ever happened up until now. So, well, maybe there was a couple of other things like the late great 17th century Lord Kelvin. You might've heard of him like degrees Kelvin. He thought that the sun was only a few million years old. Back in the day, we knew the size of the sun and the heat that it gave off. But his estimate was a thousand times too small. The trick is that the sun doesn't burn like fuel does here on Earth. For one thing, there's no oxygen. The sun is hot because of nuclear fusion. That's right. The sun fuses together hydrogen and helium, well, hydrogen atoms to make helium. And because energy and mass are related by E equals mc squared, the mass of all that helium 
releases a lot of energy. So no, you can't put out the fire <laughs> in the sun with a blanket. All right. So now on to this week's science news. ANU research last month has revealed that bushfires have a negative mental health impact for more than just those who are directly affected. The media that we probably saw in 2019 uh, featuring koalas and other wildlife dying due to fires can cause emotional distress to Australians thousands of miles away from the fires. Many Australians felt a strong sense of loss after the black summer bushfires. The term researchers use to describe the negative reaction to environmental destruction is solastalgia from Latin solacium, like solace, which means comfort, and algia, which means pain. Given the impact of solastalgia, climate and health professionals should join forces to identify areas where disasters Disaster issues are likely to compound and target resources appropriately. So that would look like um, having counsellors available for anybody who has been affected by negative impacts, by the negative news impacts from the Australian bushfires. And it's only going to get hotter, so uh, great. Some, further, some research going on further afield in our region, in Tahiti, from the University of French Polynesia, educators in French Guinea and Tahiti are aware that the cultural contextualization of these areas are different to that of mainland France. However, it means largely absent from regular classroom practices. So teachers don't contextualize what they're teaching. Contextualization is primarily referenced in relation to the immediate classroom environment. So you would learn what, uh, what is around you. The nature here in Canberra, you might learn about flora and fauna that you could find in the ACT, not flora and fauna that you would find in America because who cares? This study raises questions about the, relative, the relatively minimal presence of contextualization within the curricula and how territorial education policies can effectively lead to adaptation. This highlights the importance of making education relevant to the culture in which one is teaching. And we can see that echoed here in Australia. Obviously, it's fairly re relevant to us too. We've got a wide continent here. And depending on where you are, you should be taught about the context that you live in. There's an argument by Professor Fiona Stanley, uh, a researcher into Aboriginal health, and Donna Archie, a Bundjalung woman who is the CEO of one of Australia's oldest Aboriginal community health organisations, Congress, in Central Australia, that there is evidence that we can confidently expect tangible health benefits by changing the constitution and enacting an Indigenous voice to parliament. Continued and substantive representation of First Nations people in the policymaking process will, in the experience of these two women, result in a positive change. A strong Aboriginal leadership body in the NT in the 90s, the Aboriginal Health Forum laid the groundwork for the health improvements seen in Indigenous people in the Northern Territory from its inception in 1998. Uh, some of those 
improvements are a nine-year increase in life expectancy for Aboriginal men and just under five years for Aboriginal women. Also, infant mortality plummeted from 200 deaths per 1,000 live births to 15 per 1,000 live births. This is demonstrating that Indigenous leadership leads to better outcomes from Indigenous people. Research in Western Australia also shows us that removal of Indigenous children from their families resulted in negative impacts for almost four generations. Things like gambling and substance abuse were much higher among the group that had been removed from their families. A classic example of an expensive piece of policy that was introduced with in inadequate Indigenous consultation is the Northern Territory intervention. From 2007, the effects of this policy was an increase in child sexual abuse, which is obviously a negative health impact. Now, that's why policy is relevant to people's health and by extension to scientists who need to inform policy. The, in other news, the University of Queensland has recently uh, released an analysis of papers and concluded that expectant mothers who have experienced trauma as a child are more likely to have pregnancy complications like diabetes during pregnancy, high blood pressure, excessive weight gain, anxiety and depression. This highlights the importance of preventing childhood trauma to reduce intergenerational effects. All right. On that note, I'll play a song. We'll break it up a little bit. Welcome back. I was lucky to talk to ANU's very own Caroline Schuster, who is working in social science. Uh, she's working on how the new economy and old ways are interacting as part of the School of Anthropology at ANU's Center for Latin America. Um, Current research in Paraguay is uncovering that indigenous inhabitants of Paraguay did not become Trump-style capitalists on meeting the city folk. Indigenous people ta uh, value taking care of the land and community, things that are hard for financially-minded people to put a value on. I like to think of this concept like if I was going to trade some sugar with my neighbour for some tea. It's in my imme immediate best interest to... Fill the sugar bag with dirt, then I can have my tea and my sugar too. But this is obviously not the best strategy, as my neighbor might tell all my other neighbors about this raw deal, and I might face isolation from the community for the next time I try and make a change, a trade. I had a look at a previous article titled Subprime Empire. Subprime refers to a category of borrowers or loans that have a higher risk of defaulting on their payments due to factors such as poor credit history, limited income, or other financial challenges. It looks at um, how the financial crisis, you know, whose fault it is. And obviously that relates to health because if you can't pay a doctor, you've got no money. Um, so yeah, interesting stuff. Recently, a collaboration between a university in Hong Kong and the University of Wollongong has found that perhaps there is a solution to wearable tech running out of battery. Pacemakers don't last forever, and you have to have, uh, which you know is a problem because then your heart would stop. 
So if we could harness the movement of our body to power them, we could effectively never have to change the batteries. This could one day, one day be a reality with this new research. Speaking of batteries, a short time ago, research from Monash University found that perhaps our phones could one day be powered by taking the hydrogen from the air. There's not much hydrogen just floating around, so anything that was going to take advantage of this uh, freely available hydrogen would have to be super energy efficient. And, of course, last week was National Science Week. I'm sure you all went to see all the various events that were around, like Blade Runner was at the National Film and Sound Archive. Um, we also had the Department of Climate Change, Energy and the Environment and Water taking over Questacon over the weekend. Uh, the CSIRO was showcasing five incredible initiatives that are shaping Australia's future in water resource management. So I'd like to go through them. Soil health, responsible AI, indigenous workforce representation, and sustainable aviation. Okay, Australia's water resources. Our vast and beautiful country thrives on its water resources, sustaining communities, industries, and the environment. The there's a concerted effort underway to protect and preserve these invaluable freshwater and coastal resources not only within Australia, but on a global scale. The driving force behind this endeavour is the AquaWatch, AquaWatch Australia Mission, a groundbreaking initiative fueled by collaboration between visionary minds and led by the SmartSAC CRC, Australia's leading space research centre. Imagine a real-time information system that gives Australians insight into the water quality of their cherished spots backed by an early warning mechanism for potential issues. This AquaWatch technology is revolutionizing the way we approach water quality monitoring, acting as a guardian for both recreational enthusiasts and guardians of cultural and eco ecological sites. AquaWatch, often likened, likened to weather service for water quality, is poised to be the world's inaugural continental scale ground to space water quality monitoring system. It's a monumental leap forward, fostering the responsible management of our national treasures. This innovative technology doesn't just benefit recreational activities, but empowers environmental stewards as well. Uh, soil health. We can find that the Australian National Soil Information System emerges as a powerful tool in the hands of farmers, policymakers, and researchers. This comprehensive system amalgamates soil data from all corners of Australia, delivering consistent and invaluable insights. With more than 25% of the planet's biodiversity and 95% of its food hailing from soil, ANSIS, the Australian National Soil Information System, becomes a critical ally in enhancing productivity, health, and resilience of this vital resource. It's a stepping stone towards secure food resources and sustainable agricultural practices. Artificial intelligence is undoubtedly shaping the future, but its ethical implications are imperative. Enter CSIRO's Data61, home to a brilliant team of researchers who are pioneering responsible AI practices. In an AI-driven era where glo the global economy stands to gain $22 trillion by 2030, 
we must ensure that poorly developed AI doesn't bring unintended consequences. The Responsible AI Network, a pioneering initiative under the, the National AI Centre, lays the foundation for Australian businesses to embrace AI ethically and safely. With its seven core pillars, law, standards, principles, governance, leadership, design and technology, the network empowers industries with the best practices, guidelines and tools to navigate AI's potential responsibly. Our nation thrives on diversity and we're committed to increasing the representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the Australian workforce. The Indigenous Job Maps Map is an innovation fueled by AI-powered analytics, bridging the gap between employers seeking Indigenous talent and the aspirations of Indigenous job seekers and students. As the aviation sector grapples with its carbon footprint, a collaborative effort between CSIRO and Boeing is setting new standards for sustainable aviation. Aviation contributes 2.5% of the world's total carbon emissions, and the race is on to create a sustainable aviation fuels. With the Sustainable Aviation Fuel Roadmap, Australia is poised to lead the way in sustainable aviation fuel production, potentially supplying nearly 5 billion litres of it by 2025. It's a step closer to to decarbonizing the skies and ensuring a greener future for aviation. Also, in unrelated news, new research has found that maybe gene therapy might cure severe alcohol misuse. In a small trial in monkeys, a one-time gene therapy in the brain cured alcoholic monkeys. Currently, the best treatment for alcohol use disorders are talking therapies. This gene therapy might provide another tool for people struggling with addiction. That research came out of the Oregon Health and Science University. In health this week, nothing has changed since the uh, last few weeks. The great burden of disease globally is from a single preventable risk factor, which is air pollution, followed by smoking, followed by high blood sugar, obesity, outdoor particulate matter pollution, followed by high cholesterol. In Australia, the order is a little different. Obesity is number one. But the advice is pretty much the same as you've heard it from anywhere else. Um, eat less sugar. Stop smoking. Eat less beef, pig, and lamb, which are all high in saturated fat. Have ratatouille this week. How about that? It's all veggies and zucchini. Zucchinis are really cheap at the moment, so boom, hot tip. All right, that's it for me. I'll catch you next week. That was peer review. I hope everyone has a wonderful week at school.